Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Here we are back again. Britt, how are you? Good. How are you, Bill? Excellent. Life is uh, treating me good. I hope you've had a great week. Yeah, I've been seeing um, my kids are in school, so I've been seeing clients now and really enjoying kind of meeting with people one on one and kind of the excitement of hopping on with a new person and not knowing what their story is going to be and Mm, um, kind of digging into any way that I can help them. And it's been very exciting. And I would say when I started this podcast, um, I had a lot of like Mormon deconstruction people and that was kind of the bread and butter of what I did. And now I find that based on just kind of content that people are finding me on TikTok or other places that most of my work is now like people who did deconstruction. They don't need any more help with that, but they're in nihilism and they need to do the rebuilding part. And so now I feel like I do almost no kind of like, how do I deal with polygamy? I do almost none of that now. And now it's mostly um, like nihilism and how to rebuild kind of after that. And so I've been enjoying that space more and more, but you had a trip. How are you doing? Good. I went to uh, Jumbo's Clown Room is the name of it. It is a bar and also kind of a strip club in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, No one gets naked, but it was kind of a strip club atmosphere. There's a pole in the middle. Uh, Girls do come out and dance, but it's much more performative rather than um, sexualized, I guess, in the way the strip club is. But uh, those Girls make good money. Every one of them, like after a six minute, you know, dance had like 150 bucks in one sitting on the. Isn't it the the only profession where, you know, women far out, you know, are outpaid versus the men, you know? Right, right. Totally. It was a fun time. Well, I'm glad you had. Yeah, I'm glad you had an enjoyable time. Um, Did Amanda go with you? She did not. I took my daughter down uh, to L.A. for her to be able to move away from. Uh, her prior residence. And so we packed up, I took my minivan down and emptied out the bucket seats and stuff. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we just stocked the van f- full as possibly could be. We couldn't have stuck another feather in that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was jam packed and brought her, uh, her, all of her stuff back here. And uh, she unloaded that last night and this morning. Nice. All right. Well, today we have kind of our first guest since re- since uh, coming back from the summer for me. And this is someone that I found on TikTok who had been doing a lot of content on mysticism and just really speaking um, speaking to that in a way that made me think, I think this guy really has a sense of these mystic spaces and how to separate it from kind of the BS of spirituality. And on this podcast, I think we've been exploring mysticism more and more as we go. Like, I feel like at the beginning, we did a lot more like deconstruction kind of stuff. And now I just feel like we've been really leaning into this mystic space, um, which has just been really interesting for both of us. So I'm going to bring on Bob Peck. He is the author of a book called 
original sin is a lie, how spirituality defies dogma and reveals the true self. He's an award-winning filmmaker, author, meditator, and he calls himself a spiritual student of Christ, Krishna, and the Buddha, and he has a bachelor's degree in religious studies. So I can just tell that based on kind of the mindfulness and the um, mysticism and the religious studies work that this is someone that you and I could really vibe with. So hmm. let's bring on Bob Peck. Bob, Bob how are you? Guys? Great to be here. Fantastic. Bob, I noticed right. in your, your profile that you said you're also uh, the lawnmower. And I'm just, I'm just curious. Is this the, is this just one of the roles you've got at home? We all split up roles at our, in our, in our lives, but uh, are you the man? There's who so many the... roles that we're playing, Bill. Yeah. All these different masks that we wear yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis. I kind of, I printed that on the back of my book and like months later I was like, why did I do that? <laughs> and people have said like, that's really funny. Like, I'm glad that, you know, like, there's a lightness to this stuff. If we yeah. take it too seriously, we're missing the point, right? So, yeah. but well, yeah. I think it point, and I think it points to that you're not just like the kind of mystic or meditator that like is just posting content from like a sangha and at the top of a mountain in India. That you have like a life and you have chores and you have a child and you you know, have probably cleaned up poop very recently in your life and yet still can Hilarious. have this very mystic approach. So I'm very office space. <laughs> <laughs> you get your stapler back. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's my stapler. <laughs> All right. So I think the first thing that I would love to hear, which I don't know, um, you know, I've been kind of consuming your content, but I haven't gone back to just like, Tell me your story. Just like give me like five minutes of like how you grew up, anything relating to religion and spirituality, how you got into this space. And I, I just I want to go along for the ride. So take us on take us on your story for a few minutes. Thanks. Cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll um, try to make it relevant for you and your audience. Um, you know, grew up in East Texas as an Easter Christmas Christian, as we're called EC Christians sometimes. Um, and I that I liked going to church because we went twice a year, guys. <laughs> when you go twice a year and you dress up and you sing songs and there's we we went to this really old timey church. It was Episcopal. The pastor was really uh, warm and charismatic and funny. And we and we like I said, we went twice. It was great. Um, and then when you sleep over at your friend's house on Saturday night, you sometimes you have to go to church with your friend's family. And I started going to my friend's Baptist church um, more regularly, um, kind of after sleepovers and got exposed to a wildly different experience. Um, Eastern te East Texas um, Baptist fire and brimstone Christianity and um, started to, you know, really question things almost that early, about eight, nine, ten uh, in that period. I actually write about it in my book. I had a little old lady come up to me during like the kids Bible class and she said, do you want to go to heaven? You know, do you want eternal salvation? And I'm thinking, you know, it sounds pretty good. And um, 
you know, she basically said, all you have to do is sign here. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, kind of on the on the dotted line, if you will. And um, that really was a huge moment for me of just like being kind of blown away by, um, you know, such a kind of reductive, like thin. It feels like there's more to it uh, than that, uh, just inherently, intuitively. And um, that that was a big moment for me. I, I, I moved to Austin, Texas um, shortly after that time, at about 10 uh, or so. I'm 35 now. It's still in Austin. And my dad is... Um, uh, more open-minded. That was my mom's family going to Episcopal Church every now and again. And then my dad is uh, kind of how you explained actually your audience. My dad was altar boy Catholic to militant atheist to kind of open-minded spiritual, almost like a three-act structure. And I, I feel like I've seen that those kind of eras take place for a lot of people. And so my dad was already entering kind of his spiritual period in the nineties when I moved to Austin. And so, you know, I started reading Yogananda and Thich Nhat Hanh and, you know, I read living Buddha, living Christ, I think in like seventh or eighth grade or something like that. And, um, and my mom actually tells a story. One of her friends asked her recently, she was like, your, your son wrote this book about religion. Like what's, what's that about kind of thing. And she said, um, she said when all the other kids were reading Harry Potter, Bob was reading Thich Nhat Hanh. And that's true. I've just, I've always really been into this stuff and, and um, you know, really just have a, you know, lifelong passion for comparative religion and spirituality and, and seeing the, you know, seeing the oneness to, to the point of the mystics, which I'm sure we'll get into deeply of just um, seeing the, kind of the perennial philosophy underneath all these faith traditions. So, uh, so that was my childhood. And then Austin, Texas, I went to UT, uh, University of Texas at Austin here. Uh, I went for a film degree. And um, in that time, a lot of the, a lot of my peers were making movies about vampires and zombies. Uh, if y'all remember that era, and it was very uninteresting to me. <laughs> But I was taking all my electives in um, Buddhism and shamanism and uh, formative Christianity. And um, I said, oh, I could make stuff about these things that have some real substance and depth. And um, so ended up getting two. I got um, RTF and uh, religious studies bachelors and then just kept making films. I started making um, kind of spiritual documentaries in my 20s. And um proud of them, proud of that era. They didn't, you know, I couldn't make a living doing it, um, but they played at some festivals and, um, you know, they, they got out there and they made me who I am. But that's kind of my like postgraduate, if you will, <laughs> my uh, filming swamis and priests and, uh, you know, making films about yoga and things like that. So um, that's kind of what led me uh, to, to nowadays. Um, and, and then I, I think uh, career-wise, I started working at Facebook um, about five years ago. I kind of, like I said, I couldn't make a living in the creative field here in Austin, and tech marketing and tech came to my city, and so I learned that, and so I've been here um, doing that. But um, you know, right about five p.m., I'll uh, get back to you know writing about the cosmic Christ or uh, <laughs> you know talking about some other mystic philosophy on online or on um, 
in the book or in, in content. Um, Bob, why why these three? Why Christ, Krishna, and Buddha? Um, there are lots of gurus, right? Mm-hmm. There are lots of spiritual teachers. There are a lot of folks who... There are a lot of characters or, or entities or uh, personas that have been put kind of at the head of a religion. And these three seem to have the most influence on you. And I'm just curious, why Christ, Krishna, and Buddha? Well, it's a great question, Bill. And I don't, I also honor all teachers and all masks of the one. Um, these are just in particularly the ones that uh, pluck my heartstrings. Um, you know, uh, Yogananda really is a, a great kind of gateway to their connectivity in terms of being a modern master. Um, but the, I'd say the conceptual reason, which might not be what you're looking for, but initially I would say that I do believe they're all avatars. So um, in the Bhagavad Gita, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with, your audience probably, hopefully, um, the Bhagavad Gita is basically um, a Bible of Hinduism, a holy text. And um, it's a converse, conversation between Arjuna and Krishna, who are about to go to war and it's very good um, spiritual treatise. It's one little tiny piece of the Mahabharata, which is this uh, ancient epic. And um, anyway, Arjuna and hesitates before this battle and Krishna uh, explains a lot of kind of the way things are, if you will, in the Gita, it's so good. And one of the um, concepts that arises from this is the avatar doctrine. Um, Krishna says, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, um, when wickedness takes over, I rise to set virtue on her seat again. Um, you know, from time, various times in various geographies and various areas of the world um, to various civilizations, um, a, a, a spark of real spiritual truth and power and unity um, manifests, incarnates um, in this very explosive vital way. Um, and that's, uh, to me, Jesus, that's Buddha, that's um, many men and women throughout history. Um, so I think just honoring those three in particular as being, you know, uh, fully cooked, uh, if you will. They're, they've removed all of their own egoic identities. They're just pure vesselhoods. Um, and so that's uh, why I'm such a big fan. But then when you look at their teachings, uh, I have this section in the book on the avatars that really compares, you know, they're saying very similar stuff. Uh, They're talking about radical compassion. They're talking about um, inner discipline and um, really not being trapped, not being caught by the stimuli, the material phenomena of the world. Uh, It's all very um, overlapping uh, concepts. And I think, you know, you really only need one of them, to be honest, you know, three is plenty. So, I'm I'm, uh, I'm 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 drowning in their uh, oceanic wisdom. Let me let me ask this: <clears throat> um, most of our audience had a different story than you, in the sense that I get the sense that your dad did kind of a lot of the work in kind of deconstructing religion, doing the atheist phase, moving into spirituality, and you were essentially able to carry on his journey, which is really beautiful and pretty rare for our guests because most of our guests are, 
would be talking to your dad, right? Talking to like that process, right? So it's very interesting that you were able to kind of continue his journey of spirituality. And so for the majority of this audience who would kind of consider themselves deconstructioners, hearing something like, I think that these are avatars is going to raise some BS meter alarm bells because they're going to be scared that in order to access the wisdom, the wisdom of these people, I'm going to have to take on some Hindu beliefs about avatars or reincarnation or cosmic oneness that I'm not ready to take on because it feels a little bit too much like a grand narrative or a story or a belief system. So I guess my question is when you say these people are, these men are avatars is, is there a way to approach that, that these teachers, these mystic teachers, these desert fathers and mothers throughout history are tapping into these similar concepts of the good life, like you've mentioned, um, in a way that could be totally non-supernatural? Or is there some benefit to a worldview that requires maybe a little of, of that belief system in order to get the wisdom that you're talking about? Can you separate those two so that the people who are weary of that language because they've been hurt by religion can still access the teachings. Yeah. So what do you mean question. by avatar? Yeah. Like, what I, do you mean I, by avatar and how much of that do you need to believe in to get the wisdom that you're kind of talking about? Yeah. I, um, I really respect the secular spiritual crowd. And I think that where I, where I line up exactly with 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 them or y'all is in the practicality of spirituality. You know, I think that it has to be practical. It has to be embodied, um, or else tear all the pages out of the books. You know, they're they're useless. Um, you know, I I think every the reason for all of these different religions and all of the different levels of like metaphysics to secular within spiritual paths is due to the human psychodynamic needs. We're all different. Every human being is their own unique combination of, you know, we're seeing this with psychometric assessments, for example, in modern psychology. Um, you know, there, there's all these different ways of understanding and measuring the fact that humans have all of these different uh, ways of thinking and, and living in the world. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the, the maybe the first thing I'll say is, is the reason I was so drawn to Eastern philosophy um, is because of its inclusivity, because of its universality, because of its, um, you know, even for them to say Jesus, an avatar is a Hindu term, even for them to say Jesus and Buddha our avatars is, uh, you know, a radically open thing, you know, in terms of most religions, most institutions are at odds with the founders of other religion, of other systems. So it's for them to say, um, hey, you're as high a being as the ones that we hold to be considered uh, the highest, uh, you know, come right in, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think from, uh, as far as like what you're asking in terms of like supernatural versus secular, um, you know, it, it, 
I'm not necessarily like I can talk mindfulness and I can talk like Zen and I can talk, you know, less um, metaphysical or supernatural. I think there's I'm working on this concept. Maybe we can work through it today a little bit for, for my next book, which is which which I'm calling mindful, metaphysical, non-dual as far as almost like three like a Venn diagram, basically, of three concepts, mindful, metaphysical, and non-dual. So mindful being the most secular, the most um, devoid of, you know, to use your words, supernatural, anything beyond just the day-to-day practicality of a spiritual path. And I think, and that's totally a valid, um, you know, path of spirituality. It's, uh, you know, it's definitely a journey of awakening on its own. Um, and then you have metaphysical. So you have um, Abrahamic tradition, um, pagan, some kind of indigenous shamanic traditions have metaphysical beliefs. Um, and then third, non-dual. So you have um, really Advaita Vedanta is probably the best the best one, but there's plenty. Uh, of Course in Miracles is non-dual. Um, Zen is actually pretty non-dual. Non-dual meaning not two meaning it's all one meaning um, this this plane is like a dream basically and so uh, and that and it's almost psychedelic in terms of how it views the world so those three those those are really three avenues um to me of spirituality of this kind of path of awakening if you will and i honor all of them i think they're all valid um I don't believe that you need metaphysics or supernaturalness um, to connect with the divine or even to connect with the truth inside of yourself. But I don't deny it either. I think they're all valid. Hmm. I think for me, yeah, like I was with you with the mindfulness. I was with you with non-duality, at least at the level of experience. Um, The metaphysics one, and again, this may just be my bias, which is caused by religious trauma, not that I'm any more right than you, but the metaphysics is the one that stops me up because um, now I say that knowing that as a, as someone who enjoys mysticism and myth, there's a lot of, there's a lot of these places and these stories where I like to go because it provides a mirror to myself, helps me understand myself. Right. So I, I study all different kinds of mythology all different kinds of religions because they provide these mirrors to help me understand human nature. And so I do think that they're valuable on that level. When you get into something above that level, above that level where you're using subjective reality to define or subjective experience to define objective reality, to me, that's where, that's where spirituality gets off track because what happens there is we it's just that's the part of the game that we're bad at when we take our subjective experience and say, because of this subjective experience I'm having, therefore, this objective reality must be capital T true in some way. There must be something like avatars or there must be something like reincarnation. There must be or all these religions come together in this way. Therefore, it must be true when really it's just a reflection of ourselves that's happening. And so for me, I think with leaning on to secular spirituality, the difference would be we go into these metaphysical places and these story places only to help discover human nature ourselves. And we leave any statements about actual objective reality to science itself, which is the best tool that we have. 
for conversations about objective reality. So that would be the only place where like, I would have a, a little bit of maybe a difference there, but the other two, I can see where you're going with that. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I, I'm definitely not going to like sit here and defend, um, you know, any kind of concepts that I haven't had a direct experience of. I'm mainly referring to those ideas that are from, um, you know, Eastern religion and Eastern spiritual masters. Ram Dass was once asked, you know, kind of why he believes all this stuff. And um, so I think he had a pretty good, um, pretty good example, pretty good series of answers. He said that, you know, your own experience is, as you mentioned, your own subjective experience is, um, it's uncombackable when you have a mystic moment, when you have a true connective uh, veil breaking experience of love, of oneness, of unity, you know, if you've had those, um, they're, they're irreversible in your consciousness. And then secondarily, the scriptures, um, you know, we have a lot of different religious texts that are written by humans, absolutely. And I talk about that at length in my book and the humanness of um, religious scripture. Um, but that said, they, a lot of these ideas have been around for a long time uh, in terms of the soul, uh, in terms of, you know, transcendence of uh, material phenomena. And then third is knowing a wise teacher or several, um, you know, Ram Das obviously studied under Maharaji named Karoli Baba, who um, would was this miracle Baba. He would have little um, synchronicities would just surround this man. Um, that would be these like insightful moments for people where, you know, essentially they're just the way he described it is they're just scouting up ahead. You know, we're, we're all on this path. Some are further along than others. Some are maybe, you know, have more ways to go. We're all one big family on the way to the same destination. We're all walking each other home. But if you have, you know, those three things, your own experience, the religious holy texts, and a wise teacher. Um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, science and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk a little bit about science and mysticism. It's not my expertise. I'm not a scientist, but um, as a spiritual philosopher, I'm aware of um, some of this. So I would maybe say kind of the new science of consciousness would be my fourth um, addition to Ram Dass's original three in terms of kind of validity of, um, you know, spiritual philosophy and spiritual thinking. Yeah, I love that list. Go ahead. I was just going to, you know, jump in here. When you talk about consciousness and some of the stuff that's been coming out recently, um, things like, I don't know if you know Donald Hoffman and this the ideas that consciousness was actually what was fundamental to the universe and that time and space wasn't. And so as an atheist, I'm also bewildered at times by the mystery that, that's out there in the universe. And uh, especially within like the Hindu religion and in, in Krishna and kind of that or Krishna, that recognition that um, sort of the universe is kind of dreaming all of this, right? And and we're we're all sort of expressions of that creative energy. And and hence when you say that like Jesus, Krishna, and Buddha are avatars, an avatar, at least by the kind of the standard definition, is deity kind of showing up in human form, essentially, right? Or in some some form that we perceive as being a human or a persona. But in that in that kind of sense, 
do you kind of buy into maybe we're all avatars? Like we're all, as Eckhart Tolle says, the universe expressing itself as a human for a little while. And I guess my question is, what is the value of picking out a person and saying, there's God manifest in them. Whereas the other thing to do is maybe, you know, to look in the mirror, look around and say, we're all the universe. We're all, we're all deity. We're all, you know, when, when Jesus says we are all gods, maybe he really meant it. Yeah. That's beautiful, Bill. And um, man, I didn't know Avatars was going to I love it, though. The panel. That's great. Um, it's a great. Sorry, we have like a very, me especially, like we can get very touchy with things because we just want to make sure that like this is a safe conversation for people who have been burned by metaphysical beliefs that have been pushed totally. on them. You know what I mean? No, it's, no, it's great. And Bill brings up a an excellent point, which is, you know, the name of my book is Original Sin is a Lie, right? And so what is the real meaning of that? It means you are inherently good. You're not inherently dirty. Um, Jesus says, Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Um, you know, the mystics, particularly the East, but um, really the world mystic traditions all say um, that we are divine inherently. We all have this um, speck of creator, speck of, you know, I think maybe to use more secular terms, like the atoms that were in the, the Big Bang were fundamentally, have never uh, gone away. They're still existent throughout all creation because it doesn't get destroyed. It just transmutes, etc. Like there's poetics even in materialism. Um, you know, I definitely think that the, the inherent goodness is in every being and in terms of the value of pointing at anyone else um there's an image of polishing our own mirror that's really all we're doing in the spiritual path we're just polishing our own mirror it's our it's our ignorance of our true self it's only our ignorance of our own true identity that causes suffering and so um you know an avatar or a guru or a figure that is worth listening to is just someone who's their mirror is reflecting more light, but it doesn't mean that your mirror can't reflect as much light as, as they can. It just means maybe you got a, a few dusty you know, corners on it that you got to rub off a little bit. That's all. You know, it's a much gentler way of looking at the distinction, I think, than that you're dirty and you need, you know, the, 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 the blood ransom of this guy from Galilee. I mean, I, I have big issues with, um, you know, essentially a lot of doctrine in terms in, in exoteric uh, Christianity, but the contemplatives, man, you know, a lot of my work, but to your point earlier, a lot of my work is actually saying, um, let's not throw out the baby with the bath. You know, obviously I'm here. I am talking about the avatars. Um, you know, it's to say, let's change the water, but the baby in there, <laughs> It's good stuff. There's real gems in these spiritual paths, and they're not perfect, but there are um, transformative practical teachings and practical ways of looking at the world that improve your life. You you talk about the baby in the bathwater. The Western world took Jesus in the Christ narrative, which was firmly placed in Eastern tradition, and the Western world took it and sort of sabotaged it. I, the way I describe it is that 
the very people that Christ is speaking out against in the New Testament are the people who then created the system and put him at the top of it and said, we're the, you know, we're the gatekeepers. The for this. When, when really the gate, the proclaimed gatekeepers are the ones that he was preaching against in his scriptures. Right. And yeah. so when you talk about throwing the baby out with the bathwater, speak for a moment, if we maybe start with Jesus here out of the three, H- how does, what are your thoughts on the fact that the Western world, and I use that as a, as a phrase, cause we know what it means, but it really does start even as Rome is sort of promoting the Christian tradition uh, originally when it first starts, right? But this idea that Jesus is sabotaged to now mean this specific religion and these specific rituals and these specific things, when in reality he comes from an Eastern tradition is really calling us to Eastern thought and to Eastern wisdom, but that's not the way that Christianity has framed him. Your your thoughts on how to parse that out, how to keep the baby while still dumping out the bathwater. Yeah, totally. I, step one is the extremely practical and um, academic understanding about the Bible, which is that it is not inerrant, that it is written by humans. I mean, obviously this audience is on board with that, but there's so many Christians who say every word in the Bible is true. And, you know, the really one of the great uh, accomplishments, uh, you know, of the last 150 years in Bible scholarship is the fact that they've mapped out every letter and comma um, of the Bible. And we know where the discrepancies are. We know where the contradictions are. There's a lot of small contradictions, but there are some big ones. And my specialty is in the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. Um, and, you know, looking at, for example, we in um, in church, you do what's called horizontal reading. So you start at Matthew, the birth narrative, and then you read through it to the end of Matthew. And then you start at Mark, even though Mark was first. Historically, they put Matthew in the beginning because the birth narrative. Mark, beginning of Mark, then through Mark, beginning of Luke, then through Luke, John, etc. And you think, oh, this is all like pretty similar. But what Bible scholars do is they do what's called vertical reading. So they take the same event that takes place in multiple Gospels. It's typically two or three. There's almost no uh, events in all four, and some plenty are in one. Um, but whenever there's an event in, let's say, three, for example, looking at the distinctions between what Jesus says, what the uh, you know underlying rhetoric is, what the plot points are, etc., you can actually understand that the gospels themselves have very different qualities um so the matthean jesus for example is very jewish he's very concerned with the law the prophets the fulfillment etc whereas the lucan jesus isn't doesn't really care that much about the jewish law we know that the gospel of luke was written outside of the jewish homeland the lucan jesus is mostly concerned with the gentiles and the poor he talks a lot about greed and money more so in luke um, and then John, I mean, John is a whole, we could do hours on John. John is uh, Clement of Alexandria, who was a well-respected church father in the ap- apostolic tradition, was the first one to say, John is the spiritual gospel, you know, which is kind of a little nice way of saying it's ne- it's very not historical. Um, it's symbolic, and it does have some nice mystical language that's poetic and 
uh, worth contemplation, but it's um, much less historically reliable than the synoptics, the first three. Um, and then to your point about the Eastern Jesus, you look at the Gospel of uh, Thomas, um, Thomas, which was discovered in Nagamadi. I'm a huge fan of the Gospel of Thomas, and it's practically the Upanishads. I mean, Jesus sounds like, you know, a Rishi on the top of the Himalayas. So, um, and it was extremely early. We actually, there's some scholars believe Thomas was contemporary with Mark and the synoptics. So really for me, dissecting all of the New Testament was, um, was, was kind of my first window into understanding the humanness of the religion and really then moving into an appreciation for Jesus. So you say, well, why, why do we bother with any of it? You know, Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. I mean, that is a radically beautiful thing to say, especially in the iron age when a lot of heads are getting chopped off. Um, you know, he tells, he has a lot of great stuff. I think the, the biggest, um, most important one for me is forgive them father for they know not what they do um you know being brutally murdered being brutally killed um as an innocent man and then forgiving your murderers um is uh is about as good as it gets in terms of um you know embodying this unconditional love and so that's that's avatar hood to me is just seeing the oneness embodying the oneness of all humanity and um Mm, that really resonated with me. I was going to ask you about the Gospel of Thomas, which I think is one of the most mystical texts and um, something that I found kind of later in my in my studies and just really came to love. Um, I have a question. It, it's a it's a question that I, I don't really have an answer to, but I just would love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, the people that I know who really I can I can listen to them talk or I'm around them and I can sense that they really understand mystic Jesus, historical mystic Jesus. Um, are people who often had to step outside the institution of Christianity, maybe they do some Buddha things, maybe they do some other things and have an ex have, have a journey out there. And then they come back to these scriptures that they may have been raised with or or had Christmas story songs you know about and then they'll read things um from jesus about um you know the kind of loving kindness and compassion that you're talking about and and they'll almost come back to jesus from this different perspective and really appreciate him for um for who he was and not kind of the god and institution that we made him into be yeah. and so my question is for where american christianity is right now and how it got into bed with politics and became the power structure that it is today. Do you see that mystic Christian path available in Christianity? Or is it really something that you can get if you step outside of Christianity and come back to it? It's a great question. And, I, you know, admittedly, I'm not very proximate to contemporary American Christianity, at least uh, you know, in, in terms of knowing knowing what's going on there, it seems like it's chaos <laughs> from the outside. Um, you know, forty percent, uh, you know, decrease in attendance. I mean, it's it, pretty much since uh, the forty fifth president was elected, it seems like a lot of Americans that are Christian who are good people 
said, this is the representative of our, you know, faith tradition in terms of an American politician, uh, no thanks. And, you know, started this avalanche. And um, I have seen that uh, to your point in terms of people kind of going off reading Be Here Now, you know, or taking a psychedelic, um, you know, mushroom or a chemical, you know, in a, in a, in a way that opened up their consciousness. And then they came back and said, Oh, wait a second. Um, there's some real beauty here. You know, I think, uh, Yogananda, again, maybe this is just a Yogananda commercial, but, um, he is a, he's a modern yoga master. He came to America in 1920. Um, he died in 1952, I believe. Um, he was, um, a very, uh, lovely man who, you know, basically American spiritual teachers are indebted to him. He's the first real Swami to kind of live the majority of his life in America and die. He died in LA. Um, note scandal free, by the way. And there's have been plenty of Swamis that have come over that uh, were, were had, yeah, well, had severe fun? polishing to do. Yeah. What's that? What's the hot yoga guy? The Bikram yoga Bikram. guy? Yeah. Oh, he's pretty God. awful. <laughs> there's, there's no shortage, you know, I mean, yeah. people use, people use spirituality just like they've used religion in the past. Right. And I'm sure mm. that's where we could, we could all three riff on um, more and I'm happy to, um, but yeah, Yogananda is a, is a, is a wonderful commentator on the Bible. Um, you know, that was useful along in my journey too, going to kind of yoga and meditation retreats and things like that and seeing Jesus. I went to several Hindu you know, temples and centers and things like that. And Jesus is up there sometimes, you know, and it's like all these like Indians and like this bearded, <laughs> you know, the, the falsely Europeanized Jesus. And um, yeah, the, the mystics get him, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh is a Zen Buddhist, right? Who wrote Living Buddha, Living Christ. They really get him and the contemplatives get him. You know, you have Meister Eckhart, um, uh, a medieval um, Christian contemplative. You have uh, Risebrick, which who I'm getting into is fairly obscure, but um, John of the Cross, there's some good Catholics even that were really reflective. St. Francis, I think St. Francis walked the path of uh, the true uh, teachings of the Nazarene, you know? So, so it does exist in these little, um, these little kind of outliers, but you're right. I don't know if modern mainstream American Christianity um, is is the right instrument anymore. It seems like there's an image I um, that I when I heard this, I was so annoyed that I found it after my book came out because I was like, this is my whole thing. Kind of speaking of the avatars again, um, Father uh, or Brother David Steindelrast, who's a Benedictine monk, says all religions start from mysticism. He says. There's no other way to start a religion. He says, but what, what happens is it's like a volcano. You have the initial teacher, this man or woman that is like a volcano of explosion of vitality and loving force that's just undeniable that then the lava flows down the mountain, the teaching, it, it just impacts everything. And then over time, a century or 20 later, the same that same lava is now just cold dead rock and that is a pretty darn good you know synonym for uh, modern day religious institutions that are reflecting the very ancient stuff and I'll, and I'll just say this i know i gave you guys a lot but what what jesus and buddha also do krishna not necessarily but but most 
you know, very high teachers tend to reform the existing institution. So Jesus is calling out a lot of issues to Bill's earlier point. Jesus is calling out a lot of issues with the Jewish religious establishment of his day. In the same way, so is the Buddha. The Buddha is also crit critiquing various Hindu practices, um, you know, as a, he was a Hindu prince in ancient India um, that had begun to, they, they misunderstand the true teaching, the authentic teaching. So the, the, this, this new spark, this new volcanic explosion of you, of, of, if you will, is this corrective force uh, of love and, and unity. Hmm. Let's back up just a second, just to make sure our audience stays with us. Can you kind of just give us an idea of, we've already spoken of, we've already alluded to some of the differences between mysticism and religion and that quote and the, that analogy is really beautiful. Yeah. Can you speak more to just what is mysticism and maybe your favorite story sure. that shows Jesus as a mystic? Oh, that's great. Yeah. So th that's a great um, contextual uh, avenue. I, there's a mystical version of every religion, right? So all the religious institutions, it's, it's actually called exoteric and esoteric. And so they're in all of them. I know you mentioned Sufism to me, that that's been part of your study. So in Islam, um, you have the Sufis. In Judaism, you have the Kabbalists. In Christianity, you have a variety. Mainly the Gnostics are typically considered the Christian mystics. There's a, there's a few. Um, but yeah, my, mystic comes from the Greek word uh, mu, mu, meaning mute, uh, meaning, you know, silence. The, the ineffable, the, the mystic doesn't need a mediator um, to the divine. The exoteric institution has the community, it has the power figures, etc. Whereas the mystics um, see God in everything. I think that was a point that, that Bill mentioned earlier. You know, the, the mystic sees the face of Jesus in every person walking around or, you know, the Buddha in every, um, in every being. And um, that's that's what um, that's what got me so excited. I think in back in comparative religion school, was saying, "Oh my gosh, they're all they all have this connective thread through the mystics." Meister um, Eckhart says, "Theologians may quarrel, but the mystics of the world speak the same language." Oh, this is a great one. And Evelyn, do you know Evelyn, Evelyn Underhill, Britt? Have we talked about her? She's a uh, Obviously, you do. You PhD theologian. Evelyn Underhill was like the first um, academic scholar of mysticism. Her book *Mysticism* came out in 1911, um, and she was a groundbreaking um, person who kind of legitimized a lot of uh, these kind of ecstatic states and practices and so on. Sometimes the mystic falls into a divine trance and so on. Anyway, she's terrific. This is a quote from her. She says, "Where the philosopher guesses and argues." The mystic lives and looks and speaks, consequently, the disconcerting language of firsthand experience, not the neat dialectic of the schools. While the absolute of the metaphysicians remains a diagram, impersonal and unattainable, the absolute of the mystics is lovable, attainable, alive. Um, gosh, she's great. Um, so yeah, the mystics are this kind of living presence um, of awareness, and and then your your question on what makes Jesus a mystic, um, man, there's so many good ones. 
you know, there's one, there's a really good one, actually. In, I mean, Sermon on the Mount is very mystical, um, which I realize is maybe um, firing up the wrong neurons of your audience, but. No, that's, that's okay. Gosh. Have you have you seen have you seen some of the news reports that pastors are having a hard yes. time preaching the Sermon of the Mount because politically <laughs> it's not landing with people, and so, it's like, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, they're saying, "What is this weak stuff?" Mm. Christians are saying this, and the pastors going, "This is uh, the words of Jesus Christ." <laughs> yeah, it's it's a wild time. Um, Jesus says this, which sounds like a Zen monk to me, by the way. He says, "Don't be anxious for your life, what you will eat or what you will drink." nor yet for your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? See the birds of the sky that they don't sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you of much more value than they? Which of you being anxious can add one moment to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil, neither do they spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not dressed like one of these. It speaks to almost like a Taoist flow. Like why are Absolutely. you like, like the surrendering, effort, like the effortless mindfulness into the flow is what it kind of reminds me of coming back to it. I That's actually Absolutely. one. There's one hymn called Consider the Lilies of the Field that I actually still like to this day because it kind of <laughs> speaks to this way of being that's more of like the flow of effortless mindfulness. Um, which I still oh. find really beautiful. Jesus as a Taoist. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> the So this is, again, I'm, I think you're doing great. And I'm not saying that these ideas don't work. It's, it's that I want to come in with a little bit of push and go, and yet there are people starving every day, right? Like, so God, whatever God is, he isn't taking care of everyone. And and when I hear like the Sermon on the Mount, my mind, one, recognizes that, that at the same time, Jesus is saying, don't be concerned with these things, yet there is reason to be concerned with these things, right? But the other side of it is worrying about it doesn't get us anywhere. Worrying about it doesn't doesn't put food in our mouth. We We simply have to put a step forward, take care of the things in front of us, and what will be will be. And, and I think there's a sort of Jesus speaking to that as well, which if we just get stressed over putting a roof over our head or get anxious about what happened in the past or how tomorrow's going to go, we end up wasting vital energy that allows us to live in this moment and that these things, for whatever they are, whether it goes well or not, they're going to take care of themselves. Any thoughts there? Yeah, it's true. Um the problem of evil is is tough and we can go there if you guys want i might lose we might lose some people to clock out on the podcast but um you know i mentioned non-duality earlier which um is tends to be um you know a mystic philosophy not all mystics necessarily are non-dualist but typically the institutions are more dualistic whereas mystics tend to be more non-dualistic. And again, non-dual, this idea that um, it's this, this world, this plane of time and, and space um, is, it, it's not that it's not real. It, it, it's that it doesn't have the solidity we think it does. And I think that's what's so exciting about these, you know, the Nobel Prize winners, for example, last year, um, won the 
Nobel Prize for proving that there's no local reality to this universe. Um, you know, when when you when you look at uh, the building blocks of matter on its most atomic level, they're moving around. They're not quite. They, it, it just doesn't have the solidity we think it does. Um, and this that applies to space. It also applies to time. The Buddhists look at the non-dual sense with the Zen sense from a time perspective. So uh, my aunt one time said to me, we were talking about this, she said, this is a table, right? I mean, am I crazy? And I, you know, it, it, it's a table now. But before that, it was wood. Before that, it was a tree. Before that, it was an acorn. Someday it'll be trash. Someday it'll be ash because it'll get burned and something, you know. But for this little moment right now, it's a table. That's true. Um, you know, the, the mystics see the fleeting transitory nature of, of this plane. And um, that's why it has this dreamlike quality. Um, and so kind of coming back to the problem of evil, bear with me. Uh, maybe the nihilists will like this, though. Um, a Course in Miracles, which is a non-dual philosophy, which I really enjoy, um, says that God actually has nothing to do with this world um, because it's unreal. The real could never acknowledge the unreal. There's a sense of reality within us in, in terms of that mirror polishing that we're working on the 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 fully reflective mirror is divine it does share that at oneness with god there's a there's an aspect of the divinity in all of us in our consciousness um, but this plane of existence where we are um god has nothing to do with and um i think that that's one of the better arguments for the problem of evil from a spiritual sense than what a lot of exoteric religions try to do Mm -hmm. It would at least go to the point then that is this God worthy of worship in the same way that people want to worship a God? Um, because if it can't really help us on this plane, then why even, why even bother with it when we're dealing with real evil? But that, yeah, that, that's, that's probably, that, that's a, that's a pretty long, path to go down and i think we'll probably steer back on here that's fine <laughs> but it is interesting it is interesting to think about i'm gonna have to think about that more maybe i'll um maybe i'll message you some thoughts on that later um i want to i want to ask you about psychedelics because one of the the most interesting things with atheists is the study that showed that two-thirds of atheists who did psilocybin will not afterwards self-identify as atheist. They won't say that they're theist. They won't say that I believe in Heavenly Father. They'll just say, there's something more here than I thought. And so they'll mark other in some way. And when you ask them to define other, it, it just becomes really, you know, ineffable kind of language. Like it just felt like there was something. I just felt one with everything. Or I felt, you know, and it, it's, very interesting to me that psychedelic like doing psychedelics is something that a make are, is something that's making atheists sometimes change their stance of anti-spirituality in general and so i wanted to ask how psychedelics has influenced your spirituality and do you see that as a good 
do you see, you know, the psychedelics wing of the Harvard Divinity School? Do you see that as a good thing, giving people kind of a glimpse into a different way of being? Or do you see people kind of getting lost into Alice in Wonderland rabbit holes? And maybe it's not as productive as it maybe could have been. What do you see? How, how has that affected you? And what do you see happening in that world? Yeah, great questions. Um, I'm tripping pretty hard right now. No, um, I write about psychedelics in my book. Um, I Some people have done like it a hundred times. I've, I'm around a dozen. And um, <laughs> Britt pointed at Bill for the audio crowd. Um, I think that it is a very valuable tool. Um, if someone feels called to do it in a responsible way, I'm comfortable endorsing that. Um, I think the first thing to understand in an American culture setting is set and setting, uh, which is a term from Timothy Leary, who gets a bad rap, by the way. If you really actually read Tim Leary's research studies, um, they're pretty good. But anyway, and I write about him as a complex figure briefly in my book, but um, set and setting, it just means your intention and then the environment. Um, and so the bad thing about psychedelics is that typically in America, they're done either at a party or at a music festival, which are probably two of the worst. Well, listen, to music's fine, but you know, the ideal environment is somewhere that is your home, your backyard, you know, your room and close the door, you know, um, a place where you can really be reflective and contemplative and and initially having that intention to say, may my consciousness be expanded in a healthy way? You know, may I find what I'm looking for, et cetera, as opposed to after your third Budweiser. Um, I will say that it's also not a panacea. I like that it was two thirds. I think that's a good um, little, uh, you know, component of that story because it's not a hundred percent because it's you know it's not this universal like miracle thing like tim leary and rob das formerly richard alpert were thrown out of harvard for you know they were like kind of like how do we make like, get everyone to take this how do we put it in the water you know it's like okay no that's not the answer either um because what happens is you can do it too much you can do it too often and um you know, Ram Dass's life, really, for those who don't know, he was a Harvard psychologist. He started studying psychedelic chemicals in a research setting. They were kicked out of Harvard. And he traveled the world basically trying to find someone who knew what this uh, what this stuff was, what it was, what it was accessing for people in terms of the boundary dissolution. For those who haven't taken psychedelics, your boundaries dissolve your egoic boundaries dissolve. You see the connective unity between all beings. You have this sense of, uh, at least I have, I've had this sense of love and empathy. And you just kind of realize that everyone is doing the best they can with what they have. It's, it, it's a profound um, experience. And, but he would always come down, you know, and he says, my goal was not to get high. It was to get free. So is, is, is there a way to obtain that level of consciousness, that level of unconditional love, I think, that the highest teachers have accomplished, um, you know, th throughout the rest of your life, as opposed to just coming back down? And 
you know, he miraculously, he meets this teacher Maharaji named Karoli Baba. It's in his book, Be Here Now. I write about it as well. Um, it's online. You can read about it for free. Um, and Maharaji actually takes some of the LSD. There's, a, there's an LSD story with Maharaji, and he famously was not affected. Took quite a bit as kind of this little guru test kind of thing and nothing happened. And Ram Dass's conclusion was, when you're in Detroit, you don't have to take a bus to Detroit. You know, if if he's operating up here, we're all here, you know, acid or mushrooms are here. But if you're up here, you don't need, you're not going to be affected by this stuff. Um, and so I think it is a useful tool. And um, it's not for everyone, it should be done responsibly. And I also hope that um, the same thing doesn't happen. Well, it's already starting to happen, I think, with 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 um, kind of the colonization component. And what, what I really hope that it's not just this capitalistic, you know, tidal wave that affects indigenous communities. I hope that we're able to have this, you know, more awakened outlook in uh, the taboo of these plant medicines becoming more available. I hope that we're able to honor the cultures and you know, the teachers from which they come, as opposed to being kind of the VC backed, you know, whatever BS that Americans are so great at doing. Um, that's, I hope that it's done correctly, but, um, but yeah, that's, I, I think it's mostly positive that we're coming, entering this renaissance. And, you know, for our audience, our audience is going to be deeply familiar with Jesus of the new Testament and they've heard, uh, you know, they've, they've deconstructed some of that. They're aware of guys like uh, John Shelby Spong, Jack Spong, uh, who, who kind of takes a non-literal approach. Richard Rohr, who sure. speaks kind of of Jesus, not really in a literal historical way, but trying to give people room to kind of deconstruct, but still hang on to the spiritual power of Jesus. And our audience is going to be familiar with Buddhism and Buddha to some extent as well. Britt and I and others on this podcast have covered some secular Buddhism. Uh, and some of the tools that are there. But I think our audience is going to be very unfamiliar with Krishna. And I, I'm only familiar because of taking a world religions class in college and studying other religions besides uh, Islam, kind of Judaism and, and Christianity, the big three. But Krishna and Hinduism, maybe speak for a moment about the what you see in Krishna, in the Hindu religion, that for the person who doesn't have much awareness of that that religious faith or that uh, spiritual teacher or character, um, you know, God incarnate essentially, speak for a moment about what value you find in uh, in Krishna uh, as a as a spiritual teacher. Yeah, sure, happy to. It, it's funny that I started with him, isn't it? Um, Krishna is a divine being in the Hindu pantheon, again, masks of the one. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions about Hinduism kind of in American culture is, oh, they have a million gods. That's crazy. And they're really not. They're, it's a very complex. I mean, there's there's also no Hinduism proper. I mean, it, 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 it's an extremely varied um, series of systems and philosophies across the Indian subcontinent the last 3,000 years with uh, a you know, hundreds of different guru lineages and different uh, deities that they represent and so on. Um, Krishna is a big one because he's in this kind of 
foundational text, the Gita, the, the Mahabharata, um, as being this Christ. He's actually a king. He's a Christ-like king, um, which is somewhat unlike um, the Jesus story. But, um, you know, what's nice about Hinduism, Krishna, is that it, it, it provides a very beautiful foundation for spirituality and spiritual practice, I would say, even from a secular standpoint, it gives us uh, dhyana, D-H-Y-A-N-A, which is just meditation, just, uh, you know, very, very ancient practice um, of divine communion. Um, it does give us the term the Atman, uh, which is essentially the soul, um, this idea um, that there's this connectivity between Atman and Brahman. So Brahman is the one um, is essentially the god of Hinduism, um, but Brahman doesn't act. Uh, Brahman is behind and above create transcendent to creation. There's kind of a uh, there's an imminent the imminent deities here, and then there's the transcendent, which is the Brahman. Um, it's I'm simplifying the heck out of this, so forgive me. But um, you know where. So again, so spiritual foundation, um, one of its most cultural cliches, namaste, um, is, a, is also a good place to start in terms of kind of what, what is it and what does Krishna teach? Namaste just means the divine in me uh, or the oneness in me, if you're not comfortable with the divine word, the oneness in me uh, salutes and bows to the oneness in you. Uh, Gandhi's read on that was i honor the place in you where the entire universe resides a place of light of love of truth of peace of wisdom i honor the place in you where when you are in that place and i am in that place of mine there's only one of us that's uh, kind of the extended spiritual read of namaste um so there is this inherent divinity in hinduism that's very beautiful and profound um i'd say a couple more you know realizing whoever is still tuned in appreciate it uh there's the wheel of samsara is another concept from hinduism and krishna that that talks about so the atman of the soul is traveling through a variety of incarnations of lifetimes in different bodies in different forms um you know in having different relationships and so on in a kind of undoing if you will that mirror polishing idea right there's a there's this there's this awakening component throughout this carousel of incarnations of, of lifetimes that we go through um, is, is, a, is a Hindu concept. Um, so all of these kind of combined, you know, make up a decent uh, little aspect of it. I'll, I'll say this too, which is, which is one of my favorite things about Hinduism, which is uh, there's a word for God, which is Sat Chit Ananda, Sat Chit Ananda. And it means three things. Sat means truth. Chit means consciousness, and Ananda means bliss. So the, the word for God is truth, consciousness, bliss. Those three qualities um, kind of make up uh, what they consider to be a divine figure. Yeah, that's really interesting. And whenever I get together with Sufis, <clears throat> if you sit in a circle with Sufis and they're introducing themselves, we'll literally go around the circle and say, hi, I'm God. And then the next person will say, hi, I'm God. And that's just like a totally normal thing um, for, for Sufis. And it's just- Oh, so they're heretics? Yeah. 
So they it's, essentially it's this idea that like, yes, this form has like a name and like qualifications and does this, but in these Sufi circles, it's this like bowing to the universe in you and I have the universe in me too. And they'll spend a moment just recognizing that before they'll move into kind of whatever they're doing. And I do think it's interesting with Hinduism, if I'm ever in these um, Eastern spaces with Sufis or Hindus is, is the idea of being like a spiritual atheist is something that's very Western, right? Because I have to say atheist in order to like push off some things that just don't jive with me but you don't get the same kind of atheist rejection or atheist reaction in Hinduism. And do you think it's because there's just so many, um, because it's just so complex and there's so many avatars and there's town deities that the town kind of will worship or, um, you know, there's imminence and there's transcendence and there's so many spiritual paths and there's so many spiritual practices that everybody kind of has the room. And so there's no need for the title of atheism because saying I'm an atheist to a Hindu is kind of almost laughable to them. Like, oh, I understand that you have to do that. But in Hinduism, they don't have that same distinction. And I just wondered what you thought about that. Yeah, that's 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 so true. Um, I think it's... It, the East and Hinduism's richness of universality um, and just brutal inclusivity is, it's so refreshing, I think, from the Western lens of like, it's literally, you go to two places when you die over here. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's laughably reductive and um, it's adorable. And um, I, there's a really great image from Ramakrishna that I like in terms of like universalism that I'd love to share with you guys. It's um, it's the four blind men and the elephant. If y'all have heard of that one, um, it's y'all are both nodding your heads. I'll be brief. Um, four blind men see an elephant that walks into the village. The first man feels the elephant's trunk and says, Oh, this being is like a snake. And the second, uh, second blind man uh, feels the elephant's, leg and says oh this animal is like a column the third man feels its ear and said oh it's like a tree and they're all arguing about what this animal is like and then an awakened human being comes by and sees them and has vision a, a person with sight i guess is how the, the parable goes person with sight comes along and says you're, you're all arguing and you know you're you're all correct actually in a sense because the trunk is like a snake that's true uh, but that's only one part of it the entity as a whole ha it actually has everything that you guys are describing and more there's more elements there's more aspects to the entity um, beyond what you're even bickering about so that i love that image because it it conveys the fact that you know even the exoteric religions are touching on some essentially true aspect of a divine relationship. Hey, that characteristic does have validity, um, but you're arguing about them being, you know, more or less true. And that, so that's an issue. And secondarily, it's so much more beyond, it's so much bigger. It's all of them and more, um, I think is a really nice way to explain, um, you know, kind of interfaith uh, syncretism sometimes that is how that's called. 
I just have one kind of as we're as we're over an hour here. I just want to wrap up and really kind of promote your book. So can you tell us kind of what compelled you to write your book and what are you hoping? What were you hoping that it would do for people? And just kind of want to do a plug for for the book here as we wrap up. Oh, thanks, Brent. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's just a lot of people suffering um, primarily from religious upbringing and it's um, it's super sad. I appreciate the work you guys are doing. You're helping a lot of people that are working through kind of the confusion when you leave a religion, when you, I, you know, I've met a lot of people now in the last couple of years that have like left their religious community and are kind of wandering, uh, in, you know, in and out of the next one or, or rejecting all of it, you know, which is totally valid um, and makes absolute sense. And so, yeah, I think I was just making making as humble an offering as I can to say, um, you know, I, the original title for the book actually is called Original Sin is a Lie. The, the original subtitle was And Other Truths from the Spiritual Buffet Line. Um, the new subtitle is better, but this, I like that phrase, spiritual buffet line, you know, because it's like, that's all I'm doing. I'm just a, I'm just a billboard for the buffet. It's just, you know, we, it's not just hamburgers. We got noodles. We got tacos. We got tiramisu. You know, try what, what you like. You know, listen and learn from each of these paths and go into the one that resonates with you. Ramakrishna also says digging many wells won't lead to water. You have to dig one deep one, and that's how you hit it. So, you know, it, I think there is there is a exploratory period you know maybe where you where you are kind of reading different books and learning from different teachers but then when you find one that really hits for you um you know uh, dig in on that one and and see where it leads so yeah i think you know it's a it's a billboard for the buffet and um i hope that it is useful for folks that have been hurting what um Kind of, I guess my last question would be, what does your spiritual practice look like? You know, having spent time that you have in multiple traditions, I always find it interesting when people are, they really feel safe to discard what doesn't work and take what does, what their spiritual life looks like, what kind of rituals or practices, uh, prayer or meditations, uh, what sort of community you're able to find like what is what does that look like for you what's your deep well (laughs) yeah i you know i really am a labelist mystic i um i do a little bit of everything admittedly i i do meditation um you know i i definitely do uh my fave is a loving kindness a loving kindness meditation from the buddhist tradition which is like you wish yourself love for a few minutes you wish your um, loved ones, peace, happiness, uh, may they be at ease, and so on. There's a variety of characteristics you can give them. Acquaintances, strangers, all of the planet, all beings, etc. That's a really great one. Um, I also, um, I love journaling. I love writing. You know, creativity, I think, is very spiritual and, like, connective for me. Morning pages um, is, is really nice uh, as a writer to kind of wake up and write. It's from Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, where you kind of connect with your own subconscious and maybe something transcendental 
potentially. Um, and I, thirdly, I do like doing service work. I've done food bank work for about 10 years. Um, I'm getting closer to um, prison work as well. I'm kind of been closing in on that one. I've done a few prison visits, but I want to do more. And, um, you know, I think service is a devotion too. And it can really, it's a, it's, it's a very good drug. <laughs> I love, that. love that. Yeah, I love all of that. That's really beautiful. And uh, yeah, so the the book is Original Sin is a Lie. I'm assuming it's available on Amazon. It's on available Amazon. at your web, website, originalsinisalie.com. Oh, Audible, yeah. awesome. I, I read the audiobook, yeah. Oh, fantastic. And then um, also, do you have a, what? what's your um, TikTok handle? Yeah, it's at Original Sin is a Lie on TikTok okay, and Instagram. Perfect. Yeah, and I've really <laughs> You'll see me enjoying. in Brit's comments. Yeah, well, uh, I've really been enjoying your content on TikTok, oh, so definitely follow him there, too. Oh, All you. right, so just thank you for your time, man, and I uh, really appreciate the conversation, and we'll, we'll let you go here. So thanks for joining us. Thank you all. So glad. Have a great day. Um, awesome. So great conversation. You know, I always find it. Let me get the, the screen a little uh, a little nicer here. But uh, I always like it when folks feel really safe to delve into multiple traditions and to sort of pick out what works and and what doesn't. Um, you know, I started a podcast years ago, the Mythical Jesus podcast, where I just threw out the literalness of Jesus and just shared some of the stories of him and maybe what he was pointing to in human development. And I think there's so much value when you get past the literal level of of this stuff and Bob my favorite, to, yeah, done that. my favorite mystical kind of line in the Gospel of Thomas, which I really love, is they're asking him, like, what do we, like, Jesus seems to be doing this kind of new way of doing religion. Like, are we supposed to fast? Like, wh what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to eat? They're asking him questions of, like, what are the rules here? And he essentially says, tell the truth. Like, let's start there. And I'd have to go back to get the exact language, but it's just this really beautiful, like, let's just start with telling the truth. Let's just start with just that honesty and authenticity as kind of what's going to guide this, this kind of way of being that I'm trying to model. And it's really beautiful, but yeah, yeah I did. I, I do like him. I do like all of his stuff that he, cause I do think he's getting somewhere with the mysticism. And we've talked about this on many, whether it be psychedelics or whether it be Jesus or Buddha or Krishna, I, I do believe that there is a mystical branch to all of these religions that has tools for what is the good life, which is always like what he talked about, what his practice is, which is service and compassion and getting kind of out of the neuroticism of your head and experiencing oneness and all of these things. I was, and you could tell at the beginning that as soon as we started and he, you know, went the, you know, into the avatar thing, I could sense my inner anxiety of of oh my gosh like i don't know where this conversation is going and so like just to be open and honest with you and kind of the people of this podcast there's sometimes when that kind of language comes in and i'm not fully sure if i'm rejecting it because there's something metaphysical there that is anti-science that's worth rejecting or if that's just my own trauma response happening in my body because he's using a word and he's using language that brings up kind of old memories of 
old metaphysical statements about what's going on and it puts me on edge because that's such a hard line to do because language is so difficult and it's something that I still struggle with on this side of life, which is, which is being able to play in these spaces, but being able to do so with intellectual honesty. And sometimes that path and how to walk that line um, is, is tricky even for me now. What did you think about that part of it? Yeah. It, um, like you, I am bothered when anybody tries to tell me that the things I feel are connected to some greater truth statement that, we couldn't yes. show with science, right? But yes. I don't think Bob's I don't think Bob's doing that per se, but the language of that certainly does it. Now, the other side of me goes, not everything is explainable. And mm -hmm. there is mystery out there. And there mm -hmm. is there is processes going on. There are things going on. I just listened to Joe Rogan yesterday where uh he interviews Oh, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but it's from coast to coast, and they're talking about aliens. And you know, they're they're saying what they know to be true. And we're in this space now where even like the US government to some extent goes like maybe aliens are real. And we're all kind of in our heads going, like, you know, 20 years ago, that was just some guy in a trailer park who said he was abducted or said he saw something, and you're like, uh. Eh. I don't know what to do when people describe reality that I'm not experiencing. Yeah. Uh, and one, there are things mm, and there are things that aren't explained yet that maybe somebody has a bit of an edge on that. I don't. Yeah. No, that's something that Neil deGrasse Tyson says, because he gets asked about aliens and he gets asked about quantum entanglement, things that are just fundamentally mysterious. And he says what he, like his response to this is saying, well, that's mysterious. And he just kind of ends it there. Like yeah. when people ask him about aliens, yeah, some of this footage, I'm not really sure how to explain it yet. That's mysterious. And he doesn't go into, therefore aliens are real and area 51, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And same thing with like quantum, you know, entanglement and how it could relate to mushrooms and oneness and all these things. Some of these things really are very mysterious. Like this spiritual stuff and this on the side of experience, experiencing oneness can be very mysterious. And even how someone like a Jesus and a Buddha and how these people over time can just kind of pop out of their own societies with the same mystic wisdom even if that's just purely psychology or sociology, we still don't really fully understand how that works. It's still mysterious. And so I'm, I'm with you. Like on the one hand, I want to be open-minded when he uses words like avatar, because maybe he's meaning all kinds of things. You could mean all kinds of things. You could mean um, that they're literal God in human form. You could mean that they are humans that are kind of accessing the same well and that that process is mysterious. And, you know, that second one that I just said, yeah, I could say that. I could say that mystics are tapping into a similar well and how they do that and how someone could kind of pop out of their society and do that um, seemingly on their own is is fundamentally mysterious, even if we're just doing, you know, secular science approach. It can still be mysterious. So, yeah, I struggle sometimes in these mystical spaces because I, I fully value it at the level of experience. I, I feel what they're talking about. I've experienced what they're talking about. And yet some of the language can really trip me up. 
and make me say like, Ooh, I want to be more careful there. I don't want that to mean this. And I have, and it kind of gets me on edge, which I think you saw in this conversation. And that's just kind of the reality of how I'm accessing this. Well, I have to be careful of getting burned because I was burned before I had experiences as a Mormon and someone told me it's because of this story and I believed it. And maybe that wound will always be with me in some way. And you're, it's not that you're, you have the potential to fall for it again. It It's more that it sounds like that you're going, Hey audience, I heard that too. I just want to speak on your behalf. You know, dear guest, we're all triggered by this kind of stuff. And I don't want anyone to go looking for the next guru and place their trust in their description of reality that we're not all personally experiencing. Right. And And that was my question to him. Like, Hey, you just said some language that I don't really use. Is there a way that I can still access what you're talking about and not have to believe that kind of avatar deity kind of thing? Because words like avatar and divinity and God, um, I'll, I'll use those words when they feel safe and when the parameters yeah. of those words feel safe. But if I'm in like just an open discussion, I'm probably yeah. not going to use those words because I'm yeah. meaning something different. Right. But when, and that's always the problem totally with language. It. I know. When, when Eckhart Tolle says you are the universe expressing yourself for a little while, isn't he saying that you're an avatar for deity? hundred percent, but hundred percent. That's, that's, that's the paradox of the mystical space is yeah. that you're trying to be careful with language because you don't want it to be a dogmatic religion. Yeah. Um, and yet there's something, there's something about language that's lacking. There's something ineffable that we're talking about that sometimes we find ourselves using the same religious language that we're trying to get away from. So I, I just wanted to kind of be honest for this portion of the podcast that I, if you are listening to this and wrestling with some of those things that I am too, that I'm trying to get the tools that he's talking about, but also trying to do it in a way that feels safe to me, which always is going to have that element of science and that element of that's mysterious without having to say, well, I know it's because of this. Um, I'm just trying to avoid that because that just no longer feels spiritually safe for me anymore. Yeah. I, uh, when I asked him the last question, which was, what is a spiritual practice? And I think most of us in our head, when we, when we see somebody who is putting themselves forward as a wisdom teacher, uh, a guru, um, uh, an expert in some spiritual uh, field or realm, whether it's a Reiki master or an astrologist or whatever it is. I'm waiting, especially on the religious side, I'm waiting for them to say, you know, I get up at 7 a.m. and this is what I do. And I go to this community on Sundays or Saturday. And and what he essentially boiled it down to is it's a meditation of wishing good on others and its service in his community. And uh, we could do a whole hell of a lot worse going off track than doing those two things to fill our life. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I I think that we, when I say we, I mean the audience. I think the audience has to get it kind of into their head that they came from a system that spelled out with a checklist everything we were supposed to do. And real spirituality and following a real spiritual path is less about doing baptism with your hand raised to the square and saying these special words. 
It's really more of integrating yourself in the world around you in a way that you make the world better and that you are constantly challenging your own mental space to be present and aware of this moment that's happening right in front of you. And that really seems to be the key. And, and that's what Bob's doing. And I, I think that's what I'm doing. I think that probably to a large extent, I don't know everything about your life, but I assume that's what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's definitely when, you know, even though like, I think you and I would maybe sometimes use different language than him just because we come from religious trauma and we're not as um, seasoned in maybe Eastern traditions as we are in the Western ones. So the language may look different, but when you look at our lives, just moments of connection, contemplation, a little bit of mushrooms, some service, trying to be a good person. I mean, the actual life is pretty similar, right? We got to the same place and that's when you have to sometimes be a little bit more forgiving of the language when you look at um, that, we kind of ended up in a, in a similar place. Yeah. If, if he had been an ex-Mormon, he wouldn't use the word avatar. I don't think and so. Yeah. No. And, so. and if I wasn't an ex-Mormon, I wouldn't be triggered by it. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Cause like, we'll, we'll, you and I will do like creative five, six word statements to not say divinity. Right. We'll say yeah. like your, your, your deepest self or we'll yeah. say collective consciousness, or we'll kind of right. use these other terms that feel safer. But but at the level of experience and what we're talking about is the same. They're just using different language that they're able to use because they've been able to play in these Eastern religious spaces safely, whereas you and I have been burned. And so we have to, we have these kind of other ways, but we end up in the same place, which is what mysticism is all about, is that it was never about the language. Are you in this place? Can Are you accessing this place? This well of yeah. wisdom. Yeah. How do we have conversations so that us and our audience can be challenged by the idea of divinity? And what is, you know, what is divine? It's basically anything that connects with God, right? And um, whatever God is, again, if we water it down to what I really think works really well, which is that creative force that always has been and always will be. And um, yeah. when you use that kind of language, you, you, it's, it's so hard for an ex Mormon to jump back into that yeah. because you said like you've been burned and mm -hmm. there's been such offense given so much trauma been had that to allow someone else to tell you what you can't see with your own damn two eyes mm. is, is really difficult, but you know, this whole podcast, what, what we challenge people to do is to edge back into spirituality and a bit of the unknown. Yes. And to go like, yep, that triggers me, but let me sit with that for a minute. Let me, yes. you know, let me ask a question. Let me make sure somebody here is not trying to take my 10% and one of my days, <laughs> one of my free days away again. Yeah. But, but let me see if I can't figure out if there's something I could connect to in this universe that is mystery that would make my life better that wouldn't have me falling for some yeah. uh, pyramid scheme again. That's really beautiful. I think I have nothing more to add than kind of that last statement. So that was really beautiful. I think we wrap it up there. And I think on this podcast, we'll always be, we'll always, I mean, there are many different paths and maybe someone like Bob is, is a little bit more comfortable using words like God and divine and, and avatar and all these things. But for you and I, for, 
the work that we do in the world and kind of our own spiritual paths, I think it's still always going to be how can we talk about these tools and access these tools in the safest way possible for people who have triggers from religious trauma. And I think it's okay that we stay in that space and say that that's where we like to hang out because that's the gift that we have to offer. That's our story. You know what I mean? So I think that's okay that we continue to do that in that way. Love it. Folks, uh, do check out almostawaken.org. Britt, thanks again for putting today's show together. And do you want to tease out uh, next week's episode? I really do. Next week, we're going to have on the Naked Pastor. And we're going to be throwing up some of his um, cartoons that are just very, like he, he can say in a cartoon everything that you and I can say in two hours, but he'll do it in this concise and funny way and we'll get to hear his story. And Bill and I will throw up some of our favorite cartoons and kind of ask him for the story behind it. And again, I'm just going to do, Bill and I are just doing our best to put together episodes that aren't happening in other places and conversations like this one that um, can be sometimes, like you're saying, we're trying to invite people back into a space and sit with things that maybe we're triggering. And, and these kinds of long conversation, long form conversations are, are really rare in the world. And we're going to keep trying to bring those. And so please support the podcast so that we can continue to do that. Yeah. Go to almostawaken.org, click the donate button. Send uh, send Britt Hartley five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, whatever you can do, and we much appreciate it. And we're looking forward, Britt, to next week's conversation with the Naked Pastor. I think a lot of folks know who that is. If you don't, go Google it, uh, yeah. read a few of his uh, comic strip things that he's done, and you'll be hooked right away. He's he's really brilliant at getting to the deconstruction in the calling bullshit on the religious systems of the world mm -hmm. uh, in the nonsense that they do. He does a beautiful job of it. Yeah, thanks everyone. Okay. Have a great day. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsense spirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.